When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to After Work Drinks, your weekly dose of news, pop culture and Pinot Noir brought to you by magazine editors and best friends Isabel Truman and Grace O'Neill. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome. Izzy, you're free. You've been liberated by the New Zealand government. How does it feel? Yeah, so New Zealand's in level two now, and that basically means everything's gone back to normal, everything's open again. Oh, I think bars are the only thing that haven't yet opened, but I think they're opening tonight. So you can literally just go out like normal, but you're supposed to be social distancing still. So when you go into stores, you they monitor how many people go in and out. But essentially, you can travel again. You can go to restaurants. You can go to cafes. You can see your mates. You can have a party if there's 10 people or less, which I have done now. And it's so hard yeah. for me to imagine. Like, it's not even that many people, 10 people. But I'm like, wow, I feel like you've been to Glastonbury. I know. Yeah, it's funny. Um, But... I already I felt exhausted on Thursday, was which was the first day we were allowed to see people. And I, what did I even do? I saw a couple, a couple of mates and I just felt so tired afterwards. I just felt zapped of energy. And also I've already started doing that thing where I just overcommit. Because obviously I'm in New Zealand, so I can see friends and family for the first time in so long. I haven't seen them in six weeks since I've been here. Um, but already I feel like I'm overcommitting to things and kind of mm. stretching myself thin again. And I'm just like, isn't that the one thing that you would just learn after being in a pandemic and being locked inside for so long. You'd think you would learn what your priorities are and that you don't need to be saying yes to everything and you don't need to be always out all the time. But I feel as though I'm kind of slipping back into my old ways. 
It's so difficult when you go home as well because you – I just feel like the pressure's heightened to see everyone. And it's not that you don't want to see people, but it's kind of that thing of if you don't see them in this period, then you might not see them for a year or whatever. And, mm. and it's easy to offend people if you see some people and not other people. So it's kind – it is kind of a – no way out situation i know i just can't be like my mental health requires that i don't see anyone ever again (laughs) i isolate again that's how i I know i want to isolate every second but people keep saying to to me people keep asking how you are because new zealand's going back to normal i saw a bunch of girls today and they're like how's grace going and i was just like i think she really enjoys just being just you're thriving ask how grace is going when we get down to level two yeah also it's so funny because everyone in new zealand calls it our bubble so you have you've had a bubble the whole time and i didn't realize that wasn't a universal thing until recently so my bubble is who i've been interacting with this whole time and now you can pop your pop your bubble and so all these isolation couples are popping their bubble instead of cherry and bussing right 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 the post lockdown (laughs) bus yeah um, we got sent this, well, we might cut this cause I don't know if you'll find it funny or not, but we got sent this, we got sent some beauty products and, um, one of them was a spray that I thought was like a sleep spray for the pillow. And I've been spraying it on my pillow every night and then just been knocked unconscious for like 12 hours. Oh. And I looked at it and it's, it's a bus spray. It's like a sex spray. To what? Intimacy. Yes. If you look at it, it's like the love spray to, to I didn't like get, add I didn't things. get that. <laughs> I mean, obviously I didn't get it. I don't have a anyone to to love up they send it to the person who's in a relationship and you're right they're a letter letter of complaint i know and it just made me laugh so much because it's meant to promote like sexual intimacy and it's just making me dead unconscious for 12 hours every single night because it's i just thought it was a sleep spray but um yeah anyway things are much the same here but i've got a new apartment because i I didn't have much to do the last few weeks, so I just started a little project, which was project move into a nicer house for the same price, and <laughs> it's been a raging success. But I've yeah. signed on, Izzy, this is, like, quite chaotic. I've signed on for three years. Yeah, that's crazy. You can break after 14 months, which is still a yeah. really long time, yep. and I've never, I've never seen it before because we can't go inside. Yes, quite chaotic. Yeah. I mean, this is coming from the girl who... I haven't said this out loud on the podcast before, but who moved into a house and realized they hated it the second they moved in and then essentially packed up my entire room and moved out and moved back to New Zealand and then didn't tell them until I was here that I was just not coming back to the house. Like I paid rent and all that, but I was just like, I'm physically not coming back there ever. Please <laughs> send me my earpods immediately. <laughs> God. And I'd ordered about 15 books on Amazon before I decided I was going home to New Zealand. So they're all there. Oh, no. I know. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm a bit, I'm excited about that. And Me too. That's kind of it. Oh, so I have some good recommendations this week. Mm-hmm. First one is I started watching Pose. Oh, yeah. How is it? I You messaged me and said... I've just, oh, I think you were supposed to be replying to me about something. And then you were like, I'm so sorry, I've been watching Pose. And then you just said, and then I saw the dots, like you were typing again, and then you just go, Insecure is next, I promise. Yeah, I was like, I 
feel guilty saying anything that's not insecure. But basically, um, Paris is Burning is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a documentary about the drag ball culture of New York in the 70s and 80s, which all started there. And it's obviously having a real moment right now because that show is coming out soon with Jamila Jamil, which is a ballroom competition, like a ballroom mm. reality show. Mm. RuPaul's Drag Race is like a lot of their structure is based around it. And then Pose, which is Ryan Murphy just gets a lot done. He does a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Like uh, why does he have a show every 45 seconds? It's just crazy. I know. Everyone's so obsessed with him. Is it is is, is everyone super obsessed with him because of Glee? Or is it or is it just because he does heaps of good stuff? But Glee, oh, Glee. And did he do American Horror Story? Is that him? He did American Glee and then American Horror Story. And then he did The People versus OJ. Oh, yeah. And then And then The Politician and, like, Pose and, and then The Politician. Yeah, he's just, I mean, he is fantastic. But yeah. I just don't understand how one man can put out so much output. But Pose is a very, because the great thing about Paris is Burning is it's shot in a real kind of handy cam way and Pose is very slick. Um, but I watched the first couple of episodes and it's just like, it's just fantastic. I can't believe I haven't watched it before. And that is is not what Billy Porter's famous for, but I think that that's when he started to okay, take massive. off for his role in it. Yeah. I'm really keen to watch it. It's Yeah, it's really great. And the other thing is on a bit more of a somber note, which is Lynn Shelton, who's a filmmaker and director, most recently directed Little Fires Everywhere, very sadly passed away earlier this week from complications related to COVID. I think she had a a blood disease. And Mark Maron, who hosts WTF, the comedian, uh, did a really beautiful tribute to her on his podcast and just played he's his, he's That's his partner? Yeah, that's his partner. Sorry, yeah, her yeah. her partner. So they the interview that he played he plays with her is from 2015, and it's the first time they met. So you Aww. hear them meeting for the first time, and she's amazing. And I think at the time he was dating so wait, did called, he interview her in 2015? He interviewed her in 2015, and then again in 2018 for his podcast, and that's how he met her. Aww. And they'd been dating for the last like year and a half but had known each other for years and you can just hear in the interview it's just really beautiful like he's just so impressed by her and she's so funny and quick and on the ball and she's just an amazing person and it's very sad that it happened but it's also just a really um beautiful like tribute to a very talented woman so I think that's definitely worth a listen that's heartbreaking. I want to cry just thinking about that. He's recorded it very soon after she died, which yeah, I know that's what like, I was no one say. is in yeah. any position to judge like how you grieve. grieve. But I almost felt bad listening to it because he's like crying the whole way through and yeah. God. I know. What would you do if I... Sorry, I can't <laughs> say this. <laughs> Should I say it? I'll replace it not you funny? in seconds. No, it is funny. Nothing to see here. Izzy's gone. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so I have a recommendation, and I watched a film which is really good, and I'd never heard of it before. It came out last year, and it's called Richard Jewell. Um, and it is about. I have seen this on buses, a lot. Oh yeah, yes. so it um, it is a re- a true story. Um, when the 1996 Olympics were on, um, 
a guy, there was a bomb scare at Centennial Park when there was a concert on. And this um, kind of security guard guy who'd always wanted to be a cop, but he never quite got there. And so he was helping out at the at the gig or whatever it was. And he saw a bag and he called in, called it in. And then um, the bomb squad, like the police were basically like, oh, you know, it's, it's not, it's just a bag. It's probably just got beer on it. Don't worry about it. And he was like, no, no, no. And called it in. And then um, the bomb squad got there and basically he saved so many people's lives. By the bomb was supposed to go off and kill heaps and heaps of people, but it had been like kind of knocked over, so it didn't. I think it killed. I think maybe two two people died or something, but it was supposed to be really really catastrophic. But then the FBI start going after him because they think he actually planted it there. It's it's crazy and it's a really good movie, and it has Olivia Wilde in it. Love. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's just kind of like a heartfelt good movie. Directed by Clint Eastwood randomly. Tell me. Did he do it? I'm not telling you. (sighs) But, I mean, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even, it's, you know he didn't do it right from the start. It's more just the craziness of the story and then the whole, um, how the police are targeting him and then how the, what the role the media plays in it as well. It's kind of Mm. like an Amanda Knox tale. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, but it's it's that. really good. Yeah, and then the other, the only other recommendation I have kind of leads into our what we wanted to talk about today, and that is I re-listened to Rennie Edo Lodge's book called "Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race," and basically she wrote this book after a blog post she wrote in I think 2014 went viral of the same name, and she basically said, "This is why I'm no longer talking to white people about race." shared it on I think Twitter and it went viral and then she ended up writing a book about it because basically she realized that stopping herself from having the conversation just helped nothing and that there are a lot of people who want to have the conversation so she released this book she's British British journalist um and me and Grace both had read the book I don't know whenever it came out a couple of years ago or last year 2017 Um, I think yeah and then Mine is my copies now with my mum in New Zealand, so I'm going to get it back off her. But I wanted to re-listen to it in the wake of all of this, um, these just horrific stories coming out of the US at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I would highly recommend it to anyone to listen to it. At the start, the chap- the first chapter is very much centred around kind of, I mean, the whole book is centred around Britain and um, the history of race in Britain. But it there's a, there's chapters on feminism the feminism question and intersectional feminism um questions on white um chapters on white privilege which was really really interesting and chapters on kind of even just the fact she said that when she was four years old she said to her mum, when am i going to turn white and it was because she was watching tv and all the good people were white and all the bad people were black mm-hmm. it's just so nuts and just how you just don't even you look everywhere you look it's just whitewashed but until you open your eyes you just don't even think about it and it's something that we've been trying to work really hard on doing all the time but it's just it's hard because I think the reason we haven't talked about this on the podcast before is because I have always felt like we don't know what we're talking about because we're two white women who come from a lot of privilege in terms of the countries we were born in, the way we were raised, just everything, just being white, <laughs> being a white woman, 
And so I've never known what to say about it. This is something I wanted to talk about because there was the Ahmed Arbery case in America, which was obviously absolutely horrendous. And there was this huge social media uh, movement around it, which actually ended up with the two men who murdered Ahmad being reprimanded finally after fucking months of no justice. But it, it, it kind of put me in easy in this position where we were thinking a lot about how to discuss this in a meaningful way that wasn't just it's so sad or it's so terrible or people are racist and then kind of leaving it at that. And we realized that in taking the attitude that we weren't the most equipped people to have this conversation, we kind of realized that like a big part of why racism is still such a fucking huge endemic issue is because white people treat it as if it's not our issue to talk about. And I think that there's this attitude that like it's people of colors issue uh, as opposed to the fact that it's white people created racism and it's kind of our job to like interrogate how we can break down that structure instead of just constantly asking people of color like to give us fucking instructions about what to do. I think people just are worried to put their foot in it and that's the thing and because you are going to put your foot in it we're probably going to put our foot in it today because every because we're all learning, but that's what you have to do to kind of break down these barriers and start having these conversations. And they're going to be uncomfortable and it's going to make us probably feel quite guilty about our privilege, quite upset that all of this has happened. Because when you start reading into things and when you get really deep, you feel really, really, really sad and angry, I think, that this has happened and that these injustices happen every single day. But it's so much easier to kind of say, well, I don't know what to do or or think because you're a white person, no one wants to hear from you what to do about it. People want to hear from the people who are suffering. Because the thing is, it's it's literally with feminism. You want We want men to be our allies. But I also think that hearing a man stand up and say, well, actually, no, hearing a man stand up and say that, that women have it shit, this is what's wrong. It would be amazing. Like, you can't clearly compare racism and sexism obviously but there are there are enough parallels to kind of talk about it um a bit through this conversation but you know we saw after me too men kind of coming out and trying to be allies and it just the timing wasn't right and a lot of them did it very clumsily and clunkily and and it didn't really work out particularly well and i think that after that it just seemed that men in positions of power took the attitude of like i'm just not going to talk about it instead of being willing to um, fumble or muddle their way through a difficult or awkward conversation and I think that that's really been to the detriment of the movement that men haven't been willing to do that because I understand that it's easier to just say nothing and not get involved and, and not try to have the conversation but you're just adding to the problem by doing that and I think that we would really appreciate having powerful men have engaging conversations about the way that they can look at and address their own behavior day to day and encourage other men to do the same to try and dismantle like a system that benefits them and oppresses women and I think that that's kind of what we've realized that we need to be doing as well yeah absolutely and I think you don't want to be a white savior the thing with social media and the thing with with Ahmed's murder and the video being shared on social media it's not enough to just post about him and you can feel because you can feel as though you're just jumping on and you're just kind of yeah be, like essentially being a white savior or whatever but then in that particular case you can see how getting more and more eyeballs on that literally resulted in someone being people being arrested so social media and 
sharing these things with people really does make a difference and it's really important you do that but I just think that there's so much more that you need to be doing behind the scenes and essentially what Rennie Edo Lodge is saying in her book you need to do the learning yourself if you care about something and it's exactly like anything that you care about you wouldn't just go and ask we were saying this last week with magazines and I said this kind of will lead into our topic from for next week is when people come to us and they say what do I do to get your jobs or what do I do to get in your position and yes you can ask that question but only ask that question after you've done the work and after you've figured it out for yourself and after you've tried really hard and that's basically what the what Rennie Edo Lodge and a lot of other women who I follow are saying they're just like if you really care about this cause and you really want to make a difference then figure it out for yourself what can help us like we're sick of having to fucking essentially mansplain to you guys what to do because you want to just feel good and you want to talk to a black person and have a black person say you know make you feel better about it essentially yeah so Rennie Edo Lodge has a podcast as well that she ran in conjunction with the book's release and there was a great episode that is called the big question I think and it's basically about like the emotional labor that we put on people of color to like explain to us how to not be racist basically and and there's another episode that was amazing that she what did she call it like white women's tears are racist or something but she was saying how she was doing a book reading and she was reading uh a, a troubling part of the book about something to do with race-related issue in the United Kingdom and that a white woman just burst into tears in the crowd and how there's a temptation when we hear about these things like Ahmad Albury and police brutality and uh, the fact that people of colour are just hugely overrepresented in death rates for COVID-19, uh, the fact that there have been a huge like spike in hate crimes against Chinese people since COVID broke out, just endless, endless things. But I think that the temptation is to cry or say, I'm so sad or or kind of bring it back to how it's making you feel. And the idea being that um, if you showcase the fact that you think it's terrible and it's made you really upset, that that's like, it's like virtue signaling the fact that you are not a racist basically yeah. and that it's, it, even though you probably have really great intentions because you are shocked by something and upset by something you're kind of just taking this conversation back to yourself which is almost the whole problem to begin with so it's kind of just about like shifting the narrative away from this is making me upset to uh what can I do and then the question of what can I do I think is is asked to people of color all the time and again it's well-intentioned but there is no blanket answer, unfortunately, of like how to solve racism. And Rennie Edo Lodge was saying that whenever she's asked that question, she's kind of like, I don't know your life. I don't know the things that you can do in your life to challenge racism because I don't know much about you. Like only you can know the things that you can do day to day that can challenge that system. I think that another massive thing is no one thinks that the conversation is about them so we could very easily be like well I'm not racist because I don't have any bad feelings towards people of color I want them to be equal to to me in in every way but that's not the point it's because it's basically it's like every white person essentially feels like the conversation isn't about them that mm-hmm. we feel exempt from it somehow, but we're not exempt from it because the privilege is just seeped into us from so many years that it's going to take so, so, so long to unlearn all of these ways that we are just biased without even realizing it. It's, it's literally 
once you open your eyes, I feel, and this happens to me all, I, and I think that a huge thing for me anyway, is revisiting these books and revisiting these articles constantly because then you can just slip back into your old not your old way of thinking but slip back into being complacent and not challenging things and so I will see um now when you think about when you think about it I'll literally look on the tv and be like holy shit everyone's white I'll see a new movie poster holy shit everyone's white I'll look on a bookshelf every author is white everywhere I look is white and that's how you should think because that's exactly how we think as women when we see a room full of men you know, like, because we're women and that's, we're a minority in that sense, we are so, um, op- like, our eyes are so wide open to the fact that when there's men around or the fact that we get paid less than men or the fact that, you know, the sexism exists and is and is so rampant, but we, because we're white, we just don't, it's not actively for at the forefront of our minds, which it needs to be. I think that's a huge thing for me. And also, a lot of people of colour say essentially that there's two categories. So you're either racist or you're anti-racist, and essentially anti-racist is people who are actively being allies, actively challenging people, actively donating, actively um, attending marches, actively supporting the work of black people, doing things behind the scenes. And if you're not doing that in your day-to-day life, then you fall into like the racist category, essentially. I think the big problem is that the way we've been conditioned to understand race is that the world is split into racists almost as a noun where it's like the people in charlottesville or white supremacists or people who hold very extreme very hateful very obviously bigoted ideals so when you think of what a racist is it's so far removed from what the average everyday liberal um left-leaning middle-class educated white person sees themselves as that they feel like they can wipe their hands off the racism question because they're like well i'm not that therefore i'm not a racist therefore i can't hold racist beliefs and i think that this is where we fall into such a difficult and complicated trap because we see racism as such a narrow definition of like active racial hatred, we get very, very, very defensive when things that we do or say are framed as being racist because we automatically jump to a racist is a immoral, terrible human whose ideologies are so separate from mine. And then that's where this kind of white fragility question comes in. So this book, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, is something I've been reading in preparation for this episode. And she just says, like, if you take a really, really narrow definition of racism, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably not racist because you're taking the most narrow definition of it. If you're willing to kind of take yourself out of the equation and make it less about you for a moment and look at the ways that you kind of unwittingly feed into racist structures day to day and are willing to kind of take your own emotions out of it, then you'll actually be much more of a powerful ally because you're willing to actually look at things that you're doing each day that are having an impact on people of color that perhaps you just don't want to address or deal with because you don't want to be untangling in your brain the idea that perhaps you could be doing bad things without even realizing them yeah and also another huge thing that i've the, a huge point that i've come across a number of times is people who kind of use the uh, color blindness thing where they say I don't see color we're all human we're all part of the human race I just don't even notice like it doesn't even matter to me if you're black or white and it's like that just argument isn't valid it would literally be like a man saying to us 
well, it doesn't matter that you're a woman. I just see us all as the same. Because it would be like, okay, you might see us all as the same, but we're literally not. We don't get the same privileges as you. So it's just a stupid argument because it's just basically saying, okay, well, I just don't see the problem. Yeah, and you're you're much more likely not to see the problem when you're the one benefiting from the system. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Like, it's very easy not to see it if you're not being actively discriminated against day to day. Yeah. Like, of course you don't see it then. It's also, I think, a, that kind of speaks to the question of the fact that we tend to treat white as default and other races and other cultures as variations from the default. I know. And it's kind of this thing where you'll see people say a lot, um, you know, oh, I don't have any culture or I don't have any race. I'm just white. I don't know. And it's it's this idea that that is standard and other things are deviations from that. And that has like such a fucking huge impact on the way that everyone walks through the world. Because if Mm -hmm. you have the privilege of not actively thinking about your skin color, it doesn't, this is the thing that we've said a billion times, but it doesn't mean that you don't have any other problems or you have no other obstacles or hurdles that make your life difficult. It just means that you uh, don't have this one massive hurdle that a huge amount of other people in the world have to face. Yeah. And, and, um, that book white fragility she says to be perceived as an individual not to be associated with anything negative because of your skin color is a privilege largely largely afforded to white people although most school shooters domestic terrorists and rapists in the united states are white it's rare to see a white man on the street reduced to a stereotype yeah that's a crazy thing as well in our reading and we read a bunch of amazing stuff on this topic that we'll put all of it in the notes um but just this idea of like the angry Um, threatening violent black male that's been perpetuated through a huge amount of pop culture when we just know like intellectually know that all of the faces of male violence that we see in terms of like you say mass shootings serial killers uh serial rapists notorious violent men through history uh, are overwhelmingly represented by white men And Mm. that kind of division that we have as a culture is insane. Basically what a lot of the people whose work we were reading, um, and yeah, as Grace said, we'll put it all in the show notes, but basically they're saying that you need to take ownership of your own education when it comes to race. So there's no kind of simplified answer about it, but it's basically thinking actively daily about your privilege and then what you consume and who created that and who's getting paid for it and what voices are you consuming and supporting who are you following on instagram and whose articles are you reading and whose movies are you seeing and what causes are you supporting and who's getting paid for the products you purchase and i think that's something that all of us can learn a lot from and all of us can really make changes to help people and this is the only way like if we don't have these conversations which might be clunky and might be uncomfortable and maybe we are saying things that might be not perfect then at least hopefully some of our listeners will go out and want to do that. And I think so just uh, this is just one point I wanted to make quickly, which I think is like really, really interesting. Um, And it's about kind of questioning the way that we frame and phrase like history and our narratives about the way that society has progressed. And an example I'll use is in the book White Fragility. She talks about Jackie Robinson, who was the first African-American major league baseball player in the United States. And she says that the way that that is framed in popular culture is this person was so incredible and so talented that he pushed through a system of oppression and was finally allowed to play. 
And she said the problem with that is it kind of insinuates that never before did a talented enough African-American baseball player exist that was worthy of playing with white players. She was like, the, it, it should be phrased that Jackie Robinson was the first baseball player that white people allowed to play in the Major mm. League Baseball tournament. Mm. And mm. it's how we talk about women when we talk about voting. It's like women uh, gained the vote or earned the vote in the 1920s and women of color got the vote in 1964 instead of saying men allowed women to vote in 1920s men allowed white women to vote in the 1920s and then men allowed white and then white people allowed women of color to vote in the 1960s like the way we phrase it is so important Mm. yeah that's so true we kind of take out the responsibility of the oppressing party when we retell these stories i had no idea women of color weren't allowed to vote until the 1960s that's crazy yeah, we we say women got the vote in the twenties, and it's, yeah, you know, white yeah. women got the vote in the twenties. But th- this is all these things. History is just the way we tell these stories over time are so important in shaping our understanding of things. And if you grow up in a very homogenous, very white middle class suburb in Australia, and then you attend a very white, very homogenized school, the only introduction you have to people of color is through popular culture. You know. So you're mm. understanding a whole group of people from really problematic, reduced stereotypes from a very, very young age. And it's just informing the way that you approach uh, the people that you meet from then on. And this is why, like, we talk till we're blue in the face about representation in, like, the film industry and in the fashion industry. This is why it's so important. So um, that actually reminds me, I'm reading Clementine Ford's book, Fight Like a Girl, and in one part she references inequality and she talks about Lupita Nyong'o's speech at the 2015 Black Women in Hollywood Awards so I went to YouTube and looked it up and it is essentially exactly what you're saying with representation about how she when she was little there was no one that looked like her she never basically thought she'd ever be able to be an actress or be on screens um so we're gonna play a little bit of it here I received a letter from a girl and I'd like to share just a small part of it with you dear Lupita it reads I think you're really lucky to be this black, but yet this successful in Hollywood overnight. I was just about to buy Densha's whitenicious cream to lighten my skin when you appeared on the world map and saved me. My heart bled a little when I read those words. I could never have guessed that my first job out of school would be so powerful in and of itself. I remember a time when I too felt unbeautiful. I put on the TV and only saw pale skin. I got teased and taunted about my night-shaded skin. And my one prayer to God, the miracle worker, was that I would wake up lighter skinned. The morning would come and I would be so excited about seeing my new skin that I would refuse to look down at myself until I was in front of a mirror because I wanted to see my fair face first. And every day I experienced the same disappointment of being just as dark as I had been the day before. I tried to negotiate with God. I told him I would stop stealing sugar cubes at night if he gave me what I wanted. I would listen to my mother's every word, sitting right there, and never lose my school sweater again if he just made me a little lighter. But I guess God was unimpressed with my bargaining chips because he never listened. And when I was a teenager, my self-hate grew worse. As you can imagine, happens with adolescence. My mother reminded me often that she thought I was beautiful, 
but that was no consolation. She's my mother. Of course she's supposed to think I'm beautiful. And then Alec Weck came on the international scene. <laughs> A celebrated model. She was dark as night. She was on all the runways and in every magazine and everyone was talking about how beautiful she was. Even Oprah called her beautiful. And that made it a fact. <laughs> I couldn't believe that people were embracing a woman who looked so much like me as beautiful. My complexion had always been an obstacle to overcome and all of a sudden Oprah was telling me it wasn't. It was perplexing and I wanted to reject it because I had begun to enjoy the seduction of inadequacy. But a flower couldn't help but bloom inside me. When I saw Alec, I inadvertently saw a reflection of myself that I could not deny. Now, I had a spring in my step because I felt more seen, more appreciated by the faraway gatekeepers of beauty. But around me, the preference for light skin prevailed. To the beholders that I thought mattered, I was still unbeautiful. And my mother again would say to me, you can't eat beauty, it doesn't feed you. And these words played and bothered me. I didn't really understand them until finally I realized that beauty was not a thing that I could acquire or, or consume. It was something that I just had to be. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I also wanted to read out a, um Instagram post by a British journalist called Gina Martin, who wrote um, last week, sure, I find myself often so fucking ashamed to be white. I'm ashamed of our history. I'm ashamed of our nationalism. I'm ashamed that racism and hate-driven ideologies were the most lethal of all domestic extremist movements over the last 20 years. And most of all, I'm ashamed of our apathy, of our it's so awful and our moving on. How we will say we're shocked but not call someone out in conversation. How we're not reading the books, listening to people. How we're not willing to do the actual learning, the anti-racism work. So I'm asking you to start now. It can feel daunting or it may feel difficult to call casual racism out. But of course it does if you've not started. Read about it more, listen more and you'll gain the language. Like everything, you gain the confidence if you persist. We as white allies have to be as organized and committed as white supremacists are. That's the only way we will win. I know we can do more. I know I can and so can you. Yeah, and the thing is, is it's, I guess, you could kind of think that there's nothing really that you could do to help, but there is so, so, so much we could do to help. Like, I didn't even 
know this until I mean I actually read the statistic a while ago but I was reading it again it popped up again when I was reading doing all this reading for this episode that black women are three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy than white women and that is not because there is anything different about their bodies at all three to times more likely to die and it's because of racial disparities lack of access and and poor quality of care which are leading factors among women at lower socioeconomic levels and that this Harvard professor said that there's a bigger problem and she said basically black women are undervalued. They're not monitored as carefully as white women are when they do present with symptoms, often they're dismissed. And that even happened with Serena Williams. Her doctor dismissed her concerns and she almost died. And same with Beyonce. It's so insane. It's just, so, and also I was reading another article. I was reading an article on the Atlantic and oh, it was either the, I think it was the Atlantic and I got to the end and the next article at the bottom was um, about how Trump basically cared about the coronavirus when it first hit America. Because when it first hit America, it was hitting people really close to him were getting coronavirus. You know, like really, you know, Justin Trudeau's wife had it and um, people who were at the same kind of state dinner as him had it. He had to get tested for it. So straight away he was like, oh, God, this is re- this is going to impact really wealthy people and friends of mine and people I know might die. And he, and he took action or he started to take action on April 7th, major outlets began reporting that preliminary data showed that black and Latino Americans were being disproportionately felled by the coronavirus. And then basically Trump's cabinet was saying, and like the Fox news was saying that um, the coronavirus hadn't been the disaster that they feared and it hadn't turned out to be as dangerous as they thought and the nationwide death toll that day was 13,000 people and now it's oh and God. now it's over 90,000 so basically this author was saying that the that what he calls it is our racial contract which deems certain lives of greater value than others which is exactly what it is with that statistic about women dying in childbirth is that we value white people's lives over people of colors which is just absolutely crazy yeah, and that's, like, the whole the conversation about white supremacy. Like, it's just – I was talking to Zach about it, and I was saying that we live in a white supremacist culture in the sense that we just see statistically that white lives are just valued so much higher than people of color's lives, and yet it's seen as, like, quite extreme, loaded political language to talk that way. And I think this is part of the problem is, like, language that we use – that makes it really hard to call this system what it is without sounding like you're being dramatic mm. or extreme. Like the, the, it's, it's almost, I read a really great analogy that said racism has almost adapted in this virus like way to keep itself alive where, okay, we, things that were accepted discourse and language in the fifties are no longer accepted, but it doesn't mean that those feelings have gone away. They've just shifted into like a more sophisticated understated form that is much harder Mm. to extract you know because we don't really have the language to call it what it is or if we do it's seen as the language as being too extreme or over the top and i think that's a big part of and a part of the problem is people not wanting to be uncomfortable i mean i the other day i had a situation with a friend where she just said literally something casually racist that she would never have expected me to call her out on and it was really awkward because I had to stop. Like, I literally, we were just having a, a normal, chill conversation about basically suburbs in London. And she just said something racist. And then I had mm-hmm. to stop and say, that's really 
inappropriate that you're saying that and then we had to have this weird conversation and it is uncomfortable but basically if essentially everything that I'm reading is saying if you're not uncomfortable you're not listening and if you're not uncomfortable then you're not then you're contributing to the problem it's these it's like those tiny little things and those are the like we were just saying about how racism has become sophisticated and adapted into this socially acceptable way of saying it that is the way that Mm. we express racist sentiments now it's not overt it's yeah. i don't want to live in a certain area Urban. is this neighborhood a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood is this yeah all of these kind of quiet subtle insinuations which mean the exact same thing that they meant in the 50s mm-hmm. we're just using a different uh, vocabulary to describe it there's a lie there's a distance between saying understanding why it is that you are that way and act that way understanding the reason is really important but it doesn't provide a justification, you know, like that's the line. You can understand that you have been brought up in a culture that has trained you to see people this way. So in that sense, it's not your fault, the the culture that you're born into. What becomes your fault is when you become aware of that culture and refuse to interrogate it and do something about it. Mm, Yeah. And people kind of play having that people getting angry when there's kind of quotas for people of color or minority groups and it's like, you know, people saying that there was this thing my sister was telling me because she's studying med and she said that um, this father of a kid who didn't get into med school is taking like the university to court or something because they let Māori and Pacific Island students that a certain quota in per year and he's saying that that shouldn't be a thing and it should just be on grades. And my sister was basically like, dude, if your fucking son had the grades, he would have gotten in. It's not like... It's just so insane. And also the reason yes. that they have these quotas is because there's been a power imbalance for so long that you need to even the playing field out. It's not... If there was equality, we wouldn't have to have these structures in place to achieve equality. Yeah. And it's only there until everything's even. And then it's just... It won't be anymore. And this parlays kind of into a little interview that we want to play here, which is basically that we had been talking about this conversation for a while and doing a lot of reading and a lot of research and planning for this episode. And then I posted to the After Work Drinks Instagram uh, a post celebrating Chrissy Teigen in the wake of the kind of Alison Roman debacle. Um, I didn't know that much about it, but I just thought the way that Chrissy Teigen handled it was so kind of graceful and polished and nuanced and amazing and really wanted to celebrate that. Do you but- want to maybe um, explain a little bit about it? Because I, I still, to this day, have no idea what happened. And I think a lot of people don't. I think Alison Roman did an interview with someone, right? And then she yeah. basically said Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen churn out heaps of content or something. Yeah, so... Alison Roman, who's someone I'm not like huge, hugely acquainted with, but is a was one of those cult Bon Appetit editors, and now uh, has a column with the New York Times, and is a hugely popular kind of celebrity Instagram chef. Did an interview with the New Consumer, talking about how she's basically going to take this huge following she has, and turn it into a kind of monetized empire and basically whose path she's going to follow and what her plans are and whatnot and they asked her about what her plans are in terms of expansion and the interviewer kind of uh directly led her with a you know is it going to be a group type of thing and Alison missed that ball that was thrown her way and basically took aim at Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo kind of name checking them as careers that she didn't want to emulate because Chrissy Teigen had done a line with Target using some pretty 
like offensive kind of language saying that her work was like a content farm and that because she'd done a line with Target, she didn't really respect her career. And then she kind of name dropped Marie Kondo as well, which didn't really make sense in the context of what she was talking about. <laughs> but people were obviously very quick to highlight the fact that the two women that she had decided to go after were women of color in an industry that's kind of very much dominated by the like Gwyneth Paltrow, Martha Stewart, like archetypal white woman. And she apologized and and Christy Teigen kind of responded to her apology. And my attitude had been because I didn't I didn't know so much about it and, and should have read more about it before I posted it, was that Alison had made some misguided comments. The internet had highlighted why they were offensive. She had taken time to look introspectively and apologize. The way she apologized as well was saying I don't know why I felt the need to tear down other women to make myself feel bigger. It came from an insecurity. I'm really sorry. I'm working on this. This is my problem, not theirs. Kind of, you know, really taking ownership for that side of things. So I think that's why you were like, well, this is great. She's realized that she was tearing other women down for no reason. And then Chrissy has come back and said, that's okay. We're all learning as like carry on kind of thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that I just thought it was like a great example of someone taking on negative feedback. But but it was very much looked at through the perspective of like a purely feminist lens of, you know, we love to jump on when women are fighting with each other and uh, tend to be very quiet when when women actually make amends and make peace with each other and and kind of wanting to switch up that narrative. Um, But one of our amazing listeners, Crystal, who is uh, an author and a writer, kind of jumped in and said that while she applauded also the way that Chrissy handled the situation, she felt that a lot of the media narrative kind of sought to minimise the impact of what Alison had said and something I didn't realize until I researched further was the fact that is that she's had criticism leveled at her before for kind of taking a lot of the tenets of Asian and Middle Eastern cooking, not appropriately naming it. For example, she's apparently very famous for this stew and the stew is essentially a curry in terms of all the ingredients, but she'll kind of refuse to call it a curry and just like doubles down and calls it a That's stew. That's so weird. Yeah, which I think, I think if you are a white person, that wouldn't the resonance of that wouldn't really impact you. But when you're a person who's come from a family that is Asian or Middle Eastern and who has come to a white country like Australia or America and been made fun of and mocked for the food that you eat because it's different to what your classmates eat, or you've had people making racial slurs that are based around your food, you'll see that it's like offensive to take the great parts about that cuisine and then kind of whitewash it to a really palatable middle-class white audience like it is Mm, mm. quite gross um so then yeah I like ended up like getting on email with Crystal and like chatting to her more there and then I asked her if she would mind coming on to chat about it in the podcast and like we said before we're very aware that the onus often falls back on people of color to explain to white people how they can do better but she just had such a eloquent and amazing um kind of perspective so we really wanted to get her on to just chat to her about this in a bit more detail Is that working? Oh, I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Yes. Yay. That was me. (laughs) How are you? Great. How are you? Good. 
quickly just wanted to chat to you because you were so amazing and sent through such an amazing um, email to me and just kind of highlighted like a big blind spot that I think a lot of people have had, a lot of white people have had around the Alison Roman, Chrissy Teigen situation. If you could just kind of summarize some of the things that you said to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, it's, it's so interesting because even that little exchange, I think, um, you know, like I love you guys and, and what you do and listen to the little episodes and, and think it's great. So it was, it was so interesting to me to like come across the post in the feed, which was, yeah, as you say, it was a celebration of um, Chrissy Teigen's acceptance of, I suppose her acceptance of Alison Roman's apology for comments that she'd made in an interview about um, Chrissy and Marie Kondo. And kind of saying, you know, you guys did raise such a valid point, which is like, we don't, we are so often really keen to get into the nitty gritty and the detail of two women having it out with each other and getting into a bit of a stoush in a very public way online, but then like not give them the praise when it is amicably resolved, which I, which I do agree with. Um, but it was crazy to me to see the the language that was used around it because it actually never occurred to me that it wasn't obvious that the comments Alison had made were kind of racial. Um, so it was really illuminating to sort of see that the experience that I have, which is, wow, this is so clearly this is so clearly, I guess, sort of dragging women of colour into something that's not necessarily about them was not as obvious to everyone. Like I was so, yeah, I was almost shocked, I guess, that it it wasn't as apparent. We obviously live in this culture that is like very quick to forgive white women and to give them the benefit of the doubt in a way that we aren't to people of colour. So I think that the reaction that a lot of people had was like, oh, she's put a foot in her mouth, you know? And just because she might not necessarily have had nefarious intentions, like consciously, it doesn't mean that those weren't the intentions and connotations of what she was saying. Yeah. So it's, you've really hit the nail on the head by sort of saying, you know, we kind of exist in a society that gives white people um but I suppose if in this case if we're going to really get down to it white women the benefit of the doubt um and I think the the one of the lines I sent you in the email was you know we don't ask them to explain the same sorts of things that white people ask people of color to explain the interview with Alison that Alison Roman gave was fascinating to me because I mean she was talking about what she sees for her business and her career, which of course she's absolutely entitled to do. You know, it's her life. It seems like she has a pretty friendly relationship with the journalist who was writing up the piece, a new consumer. Um, and in that interview, she talked about a potential TV show that she that's around, you know, her and her cooking that could be coming coming out. She talked about a collaboration with, she was doing with a um, cookware brand that would be coming out. And these are like kind of just normal things that we expect, you know, quote unquote, celebrity chefs to do and to talk about when they're spruiking their work, like it's all really par for the course. But then um, she kind of goes down this line of saying, you know, I I don't want the big empire where it's like, a a full-on brand cookware brand that's all under my name and a content factory and all these different things and the interview actually gave the example of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop it was like oh so you know you would never imagine something like Goop for yourself and the crucial part there was that instead of saying 
not that she should drag Gwyneth either, but instead of saying, no, you know, I'm not really interested in something like the group empire, she completely sidesteps the example of another white woman doing exactly what she's doing. And then instead hones in on two women of colour who have not been referenced at all in the interview up until that point. It kind of came from out of nowhere, um, criticises Christy Teigen for having what she kind of deemed to be a, a content farm, which has since been proven to not be true, of people creating content for Cravings by Christy Teigen on her behalf, um, judged Christy Teigen for having a cookware line with Target, um, and then for some reason brought Marie Kondo into it as well to kind of say, you know, she sold out by selling products with her name on it. The crazy thing is that in the same interview, Alison talks about, you know, having a cookware line um, coming out, albeit a small one, having a TV show coming about, out about her kind of career. Maybe that's a small one, maybe that's a big one, who knows. But the, the crux of all of that is what Alison as a white woman does, how she navigates those brand deals, how she navigates her own content empire in whatever way she deems to she feels like she doesn't have to explain why that's of quality and why it's a good thing that she's allowed to do that however by this in the same breath she then judges two women of color for doing the exact things that she's just told us that she's doing you also talked very eloquently about some of the phrasing that she used uh like content farm and things like that and how that has kind of problematic racial undertones if you wouldn't mind just um reiterating some of that this is where it kind of comes specifically in the realm of we're not just talking about women of color but this kind of comes specifically into um i suppose cultural implications for Asian people and Asian women. So some of the, I suppose, criticisms, if we want to kindly call them that, that Alison leveled at um, Chrissy Teigen, one of them around her having a content farm for her content. My, I guess my take on that was that type of a, um, I don't want to use the word slur, that's the wrong word, that, that type of an insult to me had these really clear roots in the idea that Asian countries are responsible for pumping out really high volumes of low quality products. So that is really the underlying idea and judgment inherent in the concept of a sweatshop or, you know, massive manufacturing um, factories that we envisage when we think of production in China when we think of you know production in Indonesia what people are thinking about I would say most of the time is high quantity low quality um, so to phrase to phrase what Chrissy was doing is pumping out content from a content farm is sort of drawing on that very implication that she's pumping out lots of shit and she doesn't care for the quality of it which not only is, I mean, personally, I, I don't think that's true of Chrissy Teigen. To me, it really felt like it was drawing on a racial kind of prejudice. Um, and then, you know, not, and that's not even touching the idea of, okay, it's one thing to judge, for example, China for manufacturing so much stuff, but then also not judge the predominantly white societies, countries, cultures, 
that consume yeah, the stuff that is they're making it all mainly produced. for America, and yeah. <laughs> exactly, you know, who's buying it? Do we judge who's making it or who's buying it or both? Um, so there was this, there was a, a level of um, playing off these ideas of racial stereotypes in her comments. And the thing is, whether she even realised that or not, like I do think, and maybe this is my own internalised default to whiteness, right, but... I don't know how intentional the comments she made in that interview were. It's systemic for her probably as it is for all of us. But I think the thing that a lot of people found so galling, particularly when it comes to the, you know, drawing on those very, very, very stereotypical ideas of um, Asian production is that Alison's someone who has built a career, you know, in food and uses a lot of ingredients in her cooking and creates a lot of meals that draw from Asian food culture. A lot of ingredients that are heavily used in Asian cooking, and I would even say popularized by those kinds of meals. So it's kind of, it's a slap in, a slap in the face for on the one hand her to be like, yeah, great, you know, I'm gonna popularize the stew, which is basically a curry, but I'm not gonna call it a curry and then take these pot shots at Asian women who are also trying to find success in my industry. Like that's just, you can't have it both ways. You said something amazing on Instagram where I was like um, only focusing on the, the, the women feminist side of it and not acknowledging the race side of it. And uh, I was like, you know, society tells women that they should fight each other and whatnot. And and you were like, yeah, but it's, it's just, you can blame society only to a point, especially when you're a hugely public uh, person who's making a living off having a huge platform. We can say as maybe a reason for why people do things that there's social structures of patriarchy or white supremacy that we're all trying to navigate and it's all influencing how we think. But there has to be a level of responsibility when you hit a certain level of influence to start investigating and interrogating those things. Yeah, 100%. Like there has to be a level of personal responsibility because then, you know, if there isn't, then we can excuse anything and everything by just saying, well, you know, society is evil and society made me do it, but we are all individual members who take part in society and make it what it is. So you know, even like that night for me, I, I saw the post that you guys had put up there and I really wrestled for a while with whether I should even say something about it, which again, just goes to show how internalized it is because I second guessed myself and I, and I thought, oh, this doesn't sit right with me. I feel like it's minimizing an experience that I and others would have had reading Alison's comments. But maybe I shouldn't say anything because maybe I'm bringing too much identity politics to it. Maybe I'm bringing race into it where that's not even an issue. Do I say anything? Is it easier just to let it go? Um, and I'm so glad that I did because I think, you know, if we can take the opportunities to have these conversations, except that we won't get them right all the time, but at least try and move forward a little bit. We're taking some ownership of the world that we create around us. Like we can't just let it be what it is and not try to make things better because what's the point, you know? Um, I read a lot of Rachel Cargill. She's amazing in terms of unpacking white feminism, white fragility. I just think she's phenomenal and such an intelligent woman. 
she deals more specifically she's she's american an african-american woman woman and she deals kind of more specifically with the issues that african-americans face in america and the world um but she has this great little tidbit or tip i suppose for white women where you can kind of go okay how would i feel if this situation was happening but it was a man instead sort of saying these things about women like can we flip it that way and get a better understanding of what's actually going on here because it's not obvious i think a lot of the time it's hard to not see things that you don't have lived experience of it's hard to go down those layers of intersectionality because there is kind of that hierarchy you know and i mean as controversial as this might be to say on the hierarchy white men, white women sit just below white men in terms of the power structure so i guess it makes sense that you know you're not necessarily going to see things through the lens of a woman of color or you know a queer woman or you know all the other different ways that we can be kind of identified so it's going to take some effort to stop yourself and then say how could i see this through somebody else's lens yeah and i'm so happy that you did talk about it but but the the thing that i guess we're aiming to get to in this podcast episode is the fact that it so often falls on people of color to come out and explain why something uh is offensive or why something is uh oppressive or or hasn't been taken seriously enough and i can imagine that's a lot of emotional labor and can get very exhausting yeah i mean look it took a little time to write the email Um, because it is like, you know, it is work. And as much as I like kind of joke about it, I did have that thought too, where I was like, you know, okay, do I sit down and take some time to kind of explain how, how I felt and how I kind of see the structures of race working within this issue? Um, or do I kind of like leave it up to, to Grace and Izzy to kind of figure out for themselves and Google around. I guess at the end of the day, like that is on each individual to kind of see what their level of comfort for that is. But you're so right. Like, you know, we have this amazing thing called Google and so many perspectives are normally just a little search away. I think a really big part of the issue is having lots of different types of people in lots of different types of spaces because the more diverse our teams our working groups are the more diverse guests we have on podcasts the more diverse um, people we have within our communities these things will just get honestly picked up naturally yes most people i think if they're like scratch beneath the surface want a similar thing it's just you've just got to get through the weeds and like have a messy conversation sometimes which is very important but thank you again so 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 much i can't tell you how much we appreciate it Honestly, thank you so much for giving it the space because I do like a wholeheartedly think that conversations like this are just how it happens. It's the most enjoyable way of doing this kind of work. And I think it's honestly the most effective way of doing it as well. So that's like a nice little win-win, you know, we can have fantastic conversations and dismantle the fucking system all in one go. So I think, I mean, obviously people who are probably listening want to know what they can do. And I think what you can do is 
really like what you were saying earlier examine the ways in your life because everyone's lives are different people might have more money than others and might be able to actually donate other people might be might have time and might be able to volunteer you might only have time to really seek out a bunch of diverse humans who are telling different stories to yours and listening to them and reading up on them and and you know, reading the books, you might yeah, change your consumer habits. So you are really focusing on what you're spending your money on. That's something that we do for sustainability anyway. And I feel like it's something that we should really do to look at where your money's going at all times. And don't just kind of follow. I follow a lot of um, really amazing. We can put a lot of people in the show notes, actually. But I follow a lot of really amazing activists who basically mm. say, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the, it's t- you don't want to be tokenism. You don't want to be the token person that people follow to make themselves feel better. It's actually about doing the work. Actually, I would love to play this little excerpt from, I mean, let's not break the, what is it, tradition now, from um, Billy Porter's interview with Jamila Jamil. And he's talking about something different, but it really um, hit home for me in the same sense where he's basically saying that, He's so he's so great. He's not humble at all. He's basically like, I fucking worked really hard to get where I am and I deserve every second of this. But basically she was Jamila was saying, um, you know, were you were you prepared or how did you get your first job or whatever? And he just said, if you're not willing to put in the work, that's your own fault. And if you want to learn about something and if you really, really want to do something, you can do it. You'll do it. Like instead of just sitting around being like Mm-hmm. I don't like, literally this is just sorry to relate it back to us again but I'm like us last week were saying about our magazine jobs and how we got them and how you worked double shifts or like 20 hour days or whatever and and I moved countries within a minute's notice and we we worked really really hard to get to where we were because we wanted it so badly that then when people message us and just say oh how did you get your job it's like you just do the work if you really really want to make a change and I think that he yeah. kind of puts it so perfectly and it's like, this is what we all need to be really doing if we actually want to help. Whatever it is that you do, whoever it is that you are, do the work. If you want to be an actor, do the work. Make sure that you're in class. Make sure that you're auditioning. Make sure that you're reading plays. Make sure that you're going to the theater. Make sure the work. Y'all know what the work is. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has to tell you what the work is, then you don't want to do the work. You know what the work is. Anybody who wants to do anything knows exactly what the work is. And if you don't know what it is, find out. It's easy to find it out. And yeah, it's just being more aware. And we're like learning at the exact same time as you guys. And that's why we wanted to talk about it. We're going to talk about it last week, but we pushed it out a week because we wanted to make sure we'd really read up on it, um, up on everything. But we want to learn with you so if there's anything we've missed or if there's anything any conversations to have obviously we'd love to chat in the facebook group as we always do after our episodes we'd love to hear messages from anyone who may want to add to the conversation or may have think that we've missed points or has someone amazing that they think we should uh, have on our radar um and also i think as everyone who listens to the podcast again knows that we really want to use this uh, little community we've created in this platform to obviously highlight amazing, incredible people. And that's why we started our um, After Work Drinks with series. So you guys will be hearing from some really incredible, really diverse and really amazing people in the coming months. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. We love you all very, very much. Yeah, we do. And 
let's all get reading or audiobook listening. Actually, why I'm no longer talking about Keep About Race, loved listening to it on an audiobook because Rennie Edo Lodge reads it out. And I found it easier to get through it. Like, I ripped through it in two days. So I would highly recommend She has that. a great voice. She has a great voice, yeah. She's amazing. Yeah, and just read up. And you'll find that once you kind of, like, the second you take the defensiveness out of it, you'll find that you're just absolutely enthralled and fascinated by everything that you're reading. And angry, which is Yeah, and angry. But, but, but Yeah, I think it's like this blocker that we all have and like it's actually quite easy to just take that out of the equation and then suddenly you'll just be like a hoover just sucking up all the knowledge you can. Yeah. And I think it's important to stay angry how we are about sexism as well because then it keeps it for, at the front of your mind. Any system where, like, some people are, are, are fucking oppressed and some people are hugely privileged is just not good for humans, full stop. So, like, it's it's all the same uh, goal that we're working towards. We just need to make sure we're working towards it for everyone and not just selectively picking people who look like us and then just working towards those people. Exactly. Nice. Okay. Thanks, guys. Rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> what else? Tell your friends. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> tell your friends, tell your mum, bye. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.